All right. My greatest excitement is not books or the welcome dessert. It's Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, I'm like a kid in a candy factory. And it is kind of selfish. If you thought that was odd last week that Brian Fannin just had to stop. It's because I said, stop. You're not getting 33 to 36. That's mine. Senior pastor is going to preach that. Because it's so good. And I don't know when we're going to be back to Romans 11 or the book of Romans again. So I get this. We've been in the book of Romans now for two and a half years. And we've made it all the way to the end of Romans 11. Where we find four of the richest verses in all the Bible. Because here's what's really going on. These verses are not here to explain anything else in greater detail that Paul has not already said. These verses are here to help us understand the appropriate response to all sound doctrine. There is a response. There is a, a proper response to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine was not supposed to be the end in and of itself. And the proper response to sound doctrine of what the Apostle Paul has been penning and explaining, really for 11 chapters, but in particular chapter 9, 10, 11, is worship. And that's what you see going on in Romans 11, 33 to 36. So I want to ask you to stand as I read it. Because these verses are a call to worship. A call to worship. Romans 11 Beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who is first given to him that he should be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, here's what I want to do. Since it took us two and a half years to get here... I think we should take a minute to review because if you don't understand what we've already seen and what Paul has been explaining, it won't make sense why he's responding this way. So let's do a little bit of review. Romans chapter 1 to 3, we said, is all about sin. He really drills down into it and really pushes it right into our lap that every single human being, not that there's some sinners out there somewhere committing heinous crimes... But every single human being is a sinner by nature from birth. You don't have to become a sinner. You are born a sinner, alienated from God, against God, at enmity with God, not seeking after God. Then Romans chapter 4 and 5 is all about salvation. That God saves people freely by his grace through Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus what? Nothing. And oh, the crown jewel theological word that shows up in Romans chapter 4 and 5 is that word justification. That means your record of sin has been wiped clear. And the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ's perfect life and obedience to all the law and his father is applied to your account. So when the holy, holy, holy God of the universe looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Not based on anything you did or earned or merited or deserved. It's the righteousness of another given to you freely through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Say, wow. Wow. When you get a hold of justification, you start to rest. And you understand, oh my goodness. Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. And because it's not based on anything you did to get it, you can't lose it. Whoo. Tell some Nazarene somewhere. (laughs) This is good. Then Romans, but he knows what's going to happen next. You're so excited about this salvation. He he tells us when when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. You don't have to sin anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. Satan's not your master. Jesus is your master. You've been set free. And we start to get excited. And then we head out the door and we struggle we're like something's going on inside of me there's still this war i'm still tempted i still do the wrong thing stuff's coming out of my mouth i've got bad thoughts i'm like i keep saying i want to be but i'm doing this instead what is going on chapter six seven and eight is all about sanctification the ongoing process of becoming more like jesus of less of me more of him and that is a process and it's messy it can be two steps forward three steps back make some progress, fall. Whereas justification is point in time in a moment when you put your faith in Christ, you are justified, done. It's a legal term. It's an accounting term, done. Sanctification, hallelujah. It's the apostle Paul saying, oh my goodness, in Romans seven, let me tell you, even though I'm the one that wrote Romans four and five, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And sometimes the very thing I say, I'm never doing that again. I do. Then Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about the sovereignty of God over the entire universe and everything in it, including salvation. So Romans chapter 9 shows us that God is sovereign in choosing the elect from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Chapter 10 there, lest you settle in and say, well, then what's there for us to do? All is done. It's fatalism. Some can come, some can't. No. In Romans chapter 10, he shows that he chooses to use the gospel and us to speak and give this good news to every person in every tribe and tongue and language. And you must go and whoever confesses the Lord Jesus, whosoever will may come. You take the gospel. And then Romans chapter 11 shows that God is sovereign in choosing and using one nation, Israel, through whom he sent his son and through him whom he is not finished yet and is yet going to do something great for the fame of his name before this world is over. And that all brings us to Romans 11, 33 to 36. And explains why Paul explodes the way he does in these four verses. When he sticks the landing on this great section. And says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
in light of some of the things that he's just written, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then because he knows our temptation would be to tell God what we think he should have done and how he should be. Or I need to know all. Tell me all. Or I need you to think just like I would think. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? I'll tell who. A bunch of people sitting here try to be his counselor. It's our nature to try to tell him who he should be and what he should have done. Who has become his counselor? Or who has given anything to him? You've never given him anything that he owes you anything back that you should be repaid. For of him and through him and to him are how many things? All things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You see, at the end of Romans 9 to 11, Paul doesn't break into any further explanation. Paul breaks into explicit worship and praise for what he's just penned about God and salvation and sovereignty in light of our great sinfulness. And so here's what I want you to make a note of. Don't ever make the mistake of pitting sound doctrine against heartfelt response of worship. And here's what I mean. It's sad to me, and when I came here to plant this church, part of my desire was to see that we would be a church that was different. And we're not perfect, but I think we have this. I was growing up around churches that had sound doctrine. They were good on sound doctrine and the scriptures and sovereign God. They were just dead. To be sound in your doctrine meant, God forbid that you would look emotive in any way. That's just worldly and sinful. I'm going nuts right now. (laughs) And so you'd have to go to churches where they were frothy and really emotive. And it's hot and the place is hot and people are moving. But you ought to wear earplugs, not because of the volume of the music, because of how bad the things were that they were preaching and teaching, because it was so unsound. And yet they're excited about bad doctrine. So when I came here, I was like, I would love to see these two rivers merge. Sound doctrine and heartfelt, emotive, responding back to God worship. Because the ones that have sound doctrine should be the most white-hot worshipers. They should be the ones. Let me put it to you this way. Sound doctrine is never an end in itself. Sound doctrine should lead you to live a life of praise and worship. Not to just become cerebral and just think, this is so delightful. We've got it right. We're the ones that have it right. Everyone else is wrong. I spend my whole life thinking I'm so right. Whatever. When you've got sound doctrine of who God is and what he's done, it should fuel. And these two things should feed off each other. Sound doctrine fuels heartfelt response in worship. The more you respond in worship and get close to him, the more you're hungry to know more sound doctrine of who he is and what he's done, which causes you to emote in worship, which causes you to hunger for more sound doctrine and study further and know there's more. And these two things should both be happening. That's not just my preference. You say, well, you're kind of frothy yourself, and so that's why you talk that way. Never mind me. Romans eleven thirty three to 36 is our model. Worship is the response of 11 chapters of sound doctrine that puts God in his place and us in our place and shows who he is and what he's done. And so Paul is responding 
appropriately. So here's what I want to do with the time that we have. I want, I want to give you three warnings. Three warnings that I hope can keep you out of three ditches that I see so often Christians who still care about sound doctrine can step into. And let me acknowledge, I wish there were more Christians that cared about sound doctrine. That's already a small crowd tucked off to the side of Christianity. But of that small crowd that's tucked off to the side to say we still care about sound doctrine, a bunch of them tend to step into three ditches that I do not want you in and I don't want our church in. Here we go. Ready? Number one, your doctrine should never just feed your lust for debate, but should leave you speechless at points. And should launch you into heartfelt worship on a regular basis. It shouldn't be that as you're learning about God and seeing things from the scripture, somebody has to elbow you and say, say hallelujah now. And you're like, okay, hallelujah. It just, your doctrine should not just feed your lust for debate, but should leave you speechless at points. Sound doctrine should leave, lead you to find your hands going up. I know I just created an awkward moment because you're like, I ain't ever doing that. And that's just not who I am. Okay, let's check and see who you are. Thursday night, NFL, Bengals. First time ever, 8-0 and in the history of the franchise. Did you get animated? Did you do this? Did you come off the couch? Did you say yes? Don't if you don't do it here. Gotcha. All I'm asking is be consistent. So if you're that person that I'm just not that expressive, good, then watch all Bengal games like this too. Who day? Who day? That's as frothy as I get. I don't think so. I've seen you frothier. Just saying, think about it. You say, Brad, you're just making this up? No, I'm not. How do, I, how do I get this? I get this from the very first little word in verse 33. Did you see it? And you might have just skipped over it and thought, that's an empty word with no substance. I'm hurrying to get to something of substance. Say something. Don't do that. It's the word what? What's the first word in verse 33? Oh, say it with me. Oh, and it was meant to be drawn out. Say it again. Oh. You see, let me, let me say something. That little two-letter word has tremendous implications as to how you will live your Christian life and to how effectively you will point others to Christ. You say, what are you talking about, Brad? What do you mean? How so? Well, let me explain the word further, and I think it might become clear to you. For those of you that are English Buffs or grammarians sitting here, you probably already know that word, oh, is called an interjection. And it's because an interjection means it's a remark that interrupts. It's abrupt. If you read Romans 11 and start from the beginning and get there, you'll feel it. It, it, it interrupts. It's abrupt. Because an interjection makes, get this, an interjection makes an emphatic exclamation that expresses great emotion. An emphatic exclamation that expresses great emotion. And folks, that's what just happened to Paul. 
as he's been going down this path with this doctrinal train of thinking, and he's been unpacking the greatness of God in light of our sin and the sovereignty of God in light of our sin and the glory of justification that it's not just your sin wiped out, but the righteousness of Christ applied. The, the glories of all he's been pinning, his emotions have been stirred. It's been building and building and building and building. And Paul knows if I don't put down my quill pen... Now, we have no video, but I think he did this. If I don't express something, I'm going to bust. And then he gets back to it in Romans 12. But it's like, this, there's no further ex, explanation in these verses. It's just hit pause. We don't need to hear anything else. We don't need to learn anything else new. We've heard enough that it's time to say, say it with me. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he admits some of what I just explained is really hard. But he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? These things I just wrote prove his mind's beyond our mind. You say, but I don't understand everything he wrote and I don't like it. Yeah, duh. He's God. You're not. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's become his counselor? Who's given anything to him that needs to be repaid back? For of him and through him and to him are how many things? All things. And when you get that, then you realize the only appropriate response is to him be glory. Not just now. How long? Forever. Amen. That's what just Happen. The verses aren't adding any other explanation. It's just the most appropriate response to what we've just read and what he's just penned. Sam Storms, in commenting on these four verses, says this. I ask myself, I ask you, where is the O in our response to God? Where's the intensity of awe and amazement that a true knowledge of the Holy One of Israel ought to evoke? Much of the church has lost the O in her relationship with and response to God. Do you want to know why so many believers are muddling through the Christian life, just trying to stay out of hell and get by with as little discomfort and risk as possible? It's because what they think of God, instead, when they think of God instead of O, their response is a who of ignorance or a huh of disinterest. Or a so what of indifference. It isn't exclamatory excitement, but a religious snore that emanates from the soul of so many in the church today when the character of God is at issue. He's exactly right. Exactly right. And that's because the Christianity that so often is being served up here in America that you can find all over the best-selling bookshelf at the Family Christian Bookstore is a Christianity that has you at the center and God on the edge. And his job description is solely to serve you when you want it, how you want it, in the way that you want it. And most Christians are spending their lives judging him and evaluating him and rating him and living, quite honestly, very disappointed in him because it just doesn't keep coming through like they've been taught with the what's in it for me, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, your best life now. Tell somebody who wrote that what I said. 
the Bible doesn't show you at the center and God is some cosmic bellhop. That now prayer is our means to quickly ring the bell and he comes shuffling in and says, yes. We say parking spot, mall, Christmas time, down front, now. We say health issue, heal me, now. We say boss I don't like, take him out, now. And it's just all about us now. Our hearts didn't change. Our priorities didn't change. Our worldview didn't change. It's still me. And oh, now that I'm a Christian, God is there for me to call on to get everything I wasn't getting the way I wanted before. My friends, when you turn to the Bible, you see a very different picture of God at the center And we barely make a showing. And when we do, it's ugly. We're not the hero. The way it's portrayed is you're left saying, why didn't God wipe out everybody way long time ago? Why does he put up with us? Why does he have mercy on us? Why is he so long suffering? Why would this God actually send his beloved son to take on flesh and die for us? For us. But we got a Christian community right now that just tries to help you be convinced of how right that is. Duh, yeah, he's lucky to have us on his team. Read your Bible. It should amaze you that while we were enemies running from him, Thumbing our noses at him. He died for us. You haven't experienced anything else like that in this world. Ever. Nor will you. Let me ask you. If you say you're a Christian. You're here and you say I'm a Christian. Where's the oh? Where's the oh? In your response to God. Got any of that? Remember the t-shirts around for a while? Got milk? I'm going to do a Christian t-shirt. Got O? Got O? I see your little fish thing. I saw your what would Jesus do bracelet. Whatever. Do you have O? O? Let me tell you. The Christians that don't have O. We're going to start to watch them fall out in droves left and right. As you read the statistics... Of how less people are attending church. Let me help you here. That doesn't discourage me. You know who's exiting? Nominal Christians. And people who I wonder whether they're ever born again. Because all we're going to have left in the church. Are people who truly are filled with an oh. And we may begin to see more happen through less people. Because the people are filled with an oh. And they live all out with risk and courage for what matters most. We don't need numbers. God doesn't need numbers. Read your Bible. It's never been about, do we have the most? Who cares who's in Washington? I I shouldn't say it like that. I'm going to vote. And I do care to some degree. But in the bigger scheme, folks, God doesn't need Washington to accomplish his purposes in history. He's not worked up about it. And we need more Christians who are living with a white, hot, oh, That are willing to say, I'll do whatever. I'll risk. I'll risk. He did that for me. That's who he is and what he's done. Oh. See, 
You need to understand as a human being created in the image of God, you were designed to live on the high octane fuel of a sovereign, majestic, almighty, in control, holy, holy, holy God. And some of you, the reason your Christianity sputters the way it does, you can stomp the accelerator, you can punch it, and you just sputter. It's because you have a little bitty God who's bound to do your bidding. And it's hard to get excited about that. And here's another thing. When you're at the center of your theology, it's hard to get very excited because you're not very exciting. When you get God at the center and you begin to drink in who he is and what he's done and who he is and what he's done, it's a game changer. It'll bring you to your knees in humility and gratitude and praise. Terry Johnson. So for those of you that have kind of pushed back, it's like, well, who cares whether you got big sovereign God or more man? Who cares about election? These are just things to just debate about. I disagree. What difference does it make in your life? Terry Johnson explains the effect this doctrine of big God had on his life personally. He says, where does a true comprehension of the doctrines of grace lead us? To our knees in worship. Perhaps one reason why so few are motivated to worship God with fervor is that we have reduced God to a slightly larger version of ourselves. He can be comprehended by our logic. He works within the bounds of our rules and reasons. He's so much like us that we see no real reason to worship him. It's pathetic, but true. What practical difference does the doctrine of election make? It will make you into a worshiper. When you come to realize that the God who is there is not subject to your desires, that he's sovereign over your eternity, when you realize the greatness of his mercy and grace, you will begin to long for genuine worship, worship that prostrates you and exalts him. Your soul will crave and demand worship that is God-centered. That is filled with high praise. When once you grasp the greatness of the sovereign God, your worship will be transformed because you will be transformed. Hereafter, to have the perspective of one who lives on his knees. I'm not asking you, are you a Christian? Here's my question Do you crave and demand? God-centered worship? And do you live with the perspective of one who lives on her knees? You don't need a new praise CD. You don't need a new study Bible. Some of you, the reason you're not jazzed about God is there's not enough God in your theology. There's too much you. And you can crank praise music and you can have a better study Bible and you will be no more excited. It's when you start to see God for who he really is and what he's done and how you didn't deserve it. And then he's been the God of history, all of history, and he's marching and he's on the move. And you think, I just get to be a part of that. And I'm an object of mercy. I was not the people of God. And now I'm the people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his own special people. He took me out of darkness into this glorious light of his son to declare the praises of him. Who called me out of darkness into his glorious light. Your problem is your theology. 
And when you read Romans, you get a robust, high-octane, throw your head back. This is going to be strong as it goes down. But the effects of it in your life are so different than the pablum that is being served up at the local Christian bookstore. Number two, your doctrine should never be so filled with explanations that it makes no room for a greater revelation of who God is that pushes outside the borders of all you can fully comprehend. In other words, don't try to erase all mystery. Don't try to solve all conundrums. I don't care if you're a math major. You could be an MIT graduate. Does not matter. Do not try to erase all mystery. Now, by the same token, don't try to make things mysterious that are absolutely clear. Another problem we have going on today. But don't try to erase all mystery. Don't try to solve all conundrums. Those places are in the Bible by design. And let me tell you what we're supposed to do with those places. Those are places to bow and be silent and worship. Charles Spurgeon was brilliant. And he studied the scriptures for a lifetime and he led thousands to Christ through his preaching and one-on-one on Mondays when he would meet with anybody who was looking to Christ and, and wanting to know what the, what the gospel is. Studied the scriptures for a lifetime, brilliant man, led thousands to Christ. And here's what he said about those mysterious places in the Bible. He said, whenever I come upon a mystery in the Bible, I consider that God has set up a little altar there for me to kneel and worship. Let me ask you, does your theology have any places for altars to be set up and worship? Or is it just filled with words and all your clever explanations where you explain everything away? See, one one of the blessings, I waved around books and I want you to read. Let me tell you what the downside and the curse is in a country filled with books and retreats and conferences and the internet and information. If you want to, you can find somebody who wrote a book or did a blog that explains every and anything in a way that will seem logical to you. It just probably won't be biblical. See, if you've got, listen to me, if you have a theology with you at the center and God on the edge, that there's no points at which you're perplexed, bewildered, confounded, you probably found your theology and built it somewhere other than the scriptures. Places to worship, altars where you bow. Let me show you what I think are actually the raw materials for building an altar where you should bow and worship that are found in these verses. Look at verse 33 again. The word depth. The word depth. I'm the word choice that Paul uses here about what he's been describing just indicates it's deep. We're not even getting to the bottom of it all. You will not get all the way down to the bottom of it. I'm just showing you some of this. We can just grasp some of this. It's deep. You're not going to see it all. You're not going to be able to understand it all. You can't get down to the bottom of it. And so we're left with questions. In other words, there will always be more to learn of God forever. Now let me pop a bubble. Let me stop and pop 
a bubble for some Christians that I hear say something sometimes that I, I hope you'll just quit saying. When I get to heaven, they talk about heaven as being that place where when I get to heaven, I'm going to have all my questions answered fully and finally in a moment. Boom. They're like, bummer, I've been hoping for that. That is what would lead to boredom. When people say, won't heaven be boring? Let me tell you why heaven won't be boring. Because that that you just hoped for isn't going to happen. God is infinite. So you will have a glorified body with a glorified sin-free mind. Say hallelujah. So that you will not make any mistakes in your logic and in your conclusions. But because God is infinite, you will never be done going to school on God. Imagine that. There will always be more. And there will be more. And you'll see more. And there's another aspect. And there's another dimension. And oh, but there's more. And oh, but there's more. And that's even better. And that's... There'll be no boredom because there's no end to learning and drinking in and worshiping God. Oh, I can't wait. You're going to go to school on God. For those of you, as soon as I use that word, you're like, and listen to this, and you're going to love it. You're going to love it because listen to me, whatever subject in this life, you're like, that excites me. Fly fishing. Oh, NFL, oh, Pinterest crafts, oh, whatever excites you, listen to me. Learning and seeing God will blow it all away because there is no more glorious subject or person in the universe to ponder. You will be learning and thinking about and tasting and delighting in and responding to the greatest being in the universe. Oh, it's going to be good. But right now, there's going to be things you don't understand fully let me get you to look at another phrase look at the phrase riches of wisdom and knowledge of God what's going on there sometimes the word wisdom and knowledge gets used interchangeable in the scriptures but generally generally knowledge is the awareness of facts wisdom is the awareness and the ability to use all those facts to the greatest good and purpose. Think how many times we make a bad decision because we did not have all the, say it, facts. God always does. Think about how many times, even when we think we have all the right facts we need, we still draw a wrong conclusion and make a next misstep because we don't have all the wisdom we need of what to do with those facts. Not God. Always all the right knowledge, Always all the wisdom to know what to do with the knowledge for the greatest good to the greatest end. Not just sometimes, always. Listen to what John Piper says. It's long, but it is so worth it. Do not take a mental vacation. He knows all recorded facts, all the facts stored in all the computers and all the books and all the libraries in the world. But vastly more than that, he knows all events at the macro level. 
all that happens on earth and in the atmosphere and in all the farthest reaches of space in every galaxy and star and planet and all events at the micro level. All that happens in molecules and atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons and quarks. He knows all their movements and every location and every condition of every particle of the universe at every nanosecond of time. And he knows all events that happen in human minds and wills, all volitional and emotional and spiritual events, all thoughts and choices and feelings. And that includes past, present and future. He knows every event that has ever happened and ever will happen at every level of existence, physical, mental, volitional. And he knows how all the facts and all events of every kind relate to each other and affect each other. When one event happens, he not only sees it, but he sees the eternal chain of effects that flow from it and from all the billions of events that are unleashed by every other event. He knows all this without the slightest strain on his mind. That is what it means to be God. Oh, build an altar. Be silent. Bow. And whatever this looks like in your life, do it. It's like, oh my goodness. These are the raw materials for building an altar. Not multiplying words and explaining away things. Steve Brown says, if you have never stood before God and been confused... You have probably never stood before God. See, we keep trying to create a God in our own image that we fully understand and then worship that. And so that's what I want. I don't want, I don't want places that I don't understand. Oh, no, 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 no. What about you today? Do you have a theology of God, who he is and what he's done that's big enough to stir worship and to leave you speechless And silent, yet ready to risk, because he's so worthy. I don't have explanations for everything, but I understand he's so worthy, I am ready to respond in worship. And worship is not this safe little thing that I'll sing loud on Sunday. Please do. But worship happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You're worshiping at the water cooler when someone is dissing our God and Jesus Christ. And you can't just stand there because you are so excited about him that you want to speak up. See, John Piper says this. Missions exist because worship does not. Sometimes we get it wrong and think, oh, it's all about missions. It's all about missions. No, it's, it's about mission because it's about worship. God is worthy of the worship of the Japanese and those in Bangladesh and those in Taiwan and those in Campbell County and those in Pendleton County. He's so worthy of their worship. We go, we speak, we share. Mission should be driven by worship. But you won't go and you won't speak and you won't risk if you don't have a theology that has a great Big God that blows you away and yet you know he calls you by name and is intimate with you and loves you. And you say, I want to live for that God. I want to live for him. Cerebral thinkers that are constantly just setting up explanation stations won't risk. We'll shut it down. 
they'll shut it down. Let me give you a final warning, and it's short. Your doctrine, when it's fully rolled out, should never have anyone or anything else at the center of it than God himself. We get this from verse 36. Of him, through him, to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. What about you today? Some of you, listen to me, some of you sitting here have been living in frustration. Your whole Christian life you've been frustrated. And you think, you think what you need is more information and explanations from God. Could it be that what you really need is to finally build an altar and bow the knee and let God be God? I beg you, come down off your high horse of making demands of God. And let me ask this question. What is it that causes us to still press, even though the scripture says his judgments are unsearchable? What's unsearchable mean? Can't do it. His ways are past finding out. What's that mean? You won't find out. And yet we still demand, oh, but I must know. I must know. I will not rest until I know. What's behind that? Say it. Pride. Pride. And then you wonder why you don't have real joy, peace, purpose because instead of bowing the knee and building an altar and shutting up some of you have lived your whole Christian life still squared off with God on your feet fighting telling him who he should be what he should do and the ways he should have done it that would make perfect sense to you you want real joy you want peace you want the ability to risk You want a sense of high-octane fuel running through your system that enables you to stop the accelerator and punch it and go into situations? And you find yourself saying, was that me? Build an altar, bow the knee, and become a worshiper before you head out on mission. And watch what just might happen. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for not just giving us cold, sterile, accurate doctrine to debate and to feed our own lust of knowledge and how right we are, but that you've given us doctrine to fuel worship, to cause us to live wide open all out for Jesus Christ. Oh God, we would say, show us more of who you are, not that we might boast about it, but that we might even more cross the line into boldness and courage and unrestraint, setting aside thoughts of ourselves and saying, my God and his son and his kingdom is so worthy. I get to be his ambassador in my weakness because he's made me an object of mercy. Oh God. Do this for your glory and our great good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.